In this episode, we speak with Joshua Nelson, Managing Director and Head of the Healthcare Group for Thomas H. Lee Partners, also known as THL. In his role, Josh leads a dynamic team with deep understanding of the healthcare space and operating experience. Josh was recognized by GrowthCap as a top 25 healthcare investor of 2022. THL invests in middle market growth companies exclusively within selected identified sector opportunities, or ISOs, in three industry groups, financial technology and services, healthcare, and technology and business solutions. Since 1974, the firm has raised more than $34 billion of equity capital and has invested in over 160 companies. Josh is currently on the board of Adara Pharma Solutions, Agility Health, Autism Home Care Holdings, C-Safe Global, Hospice Care, Intelligent Medical Objects, Next Tech, Professional Physical Therapy, Senior Home Care Holdings, and Smile Doctors. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. We hope you enjoy the show. RJ Lumba is the managing partner of GrowthCap and the executive chairman of Market Insight Media. He is the host of Growth Investor, a podcast featuring today's best investors, executives, and founders. In the minutes ahead, we'll uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. Josh, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. It's a delight to be with you. Where I'd like to kick off is 20 years or nearly 20 years at THL Partners. What do you attribute your success to? Well, thanks, RJ, for having me on today. It's a pleasure to be with you and to talk with you. You're right. I've been at THL Partners now uh, 19 years this month. And so the answer that I give when interviewing someone or someone's thinking about joining our firm or thinking about joining another firm, ultimately, it boils down to the same two or three things. Is the work that we're doing interesting and stimulating and feel like we're having the impact that we want to have? And I think uh, one of the things I've enjoyed a lot about my experience at THL is I focused on healthcare. And I think healthcare has such a consequential impact on so many things. So that's been really rewarding. But perhaps the bigger thing is, is going to be the people you work with. In these jobs, you spend a lot of time with your colleagues. You used to spend a lot of time with our colleagues on the road and in airports and all those things, a little less in the post-pandemic world. But you do still spend a lot of time engaging, interacting, conversing with these colleagues. And we're fortunate here at THL that we've had a great group over a number of years that has kept me excited to go to work every day. You graduated from Princeton. I'm actually doing this this interview from Princeton. I've been fortunate to meet a lot of folks who graduated from there. What was your major? And did you have your sights set on a career in investing? I did not. I had a major. We probably know Princeton doesn't have a, a business school. They don't really have a business major. I had a what was called a political economy major, which we didn't have majors and minors, but I majored essentially in politics and I had a minor in, in economics. And in fact, a funny aside, my econ 101 professor was Ben Bernanke. So that was, I was doing some cleaning of some things uh, out of my parents' house at one point, And I found one of my freshman year exams where Ben Bernanke had uh, graded me. So I found that kind of 
an interesting little tidbit. But politics and economics, and economics, it was really kind of more the study of economics and macroeconomics, not really business. So I didn't know what I wanted to do when I was at Princeton. And I was fortunate that toward the end of my Princeton career, a lot of consulting firms and investment banks came down to school and told the story of what you did every day in their jobs and and recruited. And I got attracted to McKinsey and Company and thought starting in my career at a consulting firm would be a really interesting entree into the business world. and, And it proved to be. And the rest took off from there. And we'll head into healthcare. I guess one way of doing that is is to hear how it worked it happened for you. You know, you had worked in uh, as you mentioned consulting and and then also in it looks like investment banking. Had you focused on healthcare in either of those roles? How did you kind of enter the space? Yeah, it's a great question. So after McKinsey, I spent a couple of years at McKinsey enjoyed that work. But one of the last assignments I worked on was actually doing diligence for a private equity firm. And that got my interest up in saying, it's interesting work we do here at McKinsey. We do a four-week project or six-week project on market diligence and assess this business and take a point of view as to whether this is going to be a, a sustainably successful business or what they need to do for a value creation plan. But then we move on to the next thing. And uh, Wouldn't it be a lot more interesting for my interest to actually be in a position where I was at a private equity firm and not jumping from one project or business to the other, but actually making that investment and then working with that company and being on the board and spending five years on average being part of trying to figure out whether our original investment thesis and view on the market and the company was right. And inevitably, there are things that change and, and you have to pivot and, and the best laid plans have to alter and change based upon new information. And so that led me into private equity. As you said, I was at JP Morgan actually in their private equity group. So doing private equity rather than investment banking for a couple of years before I joined THL in 2003. And at the time in 2003, I think most private equity professionals were more generalist. And so I worked on some healthcare opportunities, but we were more of a generalist firm. And in 2008, had the global financial crisis, and we were doing a lot of assessment of our own business model. And we decided that where the industry was going into to be successful, we needed to specialize ourselves more and not just be generalists. And because I had worked on some healthcare, that led me to to sort of gravitate toward healthcare and as we began to have a much more proactive effort in healthcare, we started to have some success there. And that doubled down my interest and my focus on healthcare. And to me, I always have enjoyed healthcare because of one of the things I mentioned earlier, healthcare has such a profound impact on so many different things outside the business world as well. And so that was a compelling way for me to, to think about investing and mixing to a couple of different interests. Healthcare is such a big sector and it could be broken out into different maybe subsectors. How do you go about investing for the beginning of the, I guess, the start of the process, figuring out which areas that you want to be focused on? So it's a great question. Healthcare is, is, you know, it's a large market. As a firm, we invest in a couple of different areas broadly now. We invest in 
we're growth investors by nature. So we invest in healthcare companies, technology companies, financial technology companies. But if you think about where there's growth in the economy right now, it's generally around technology businesses, healthcare businesses, etc. And so that's where as a firm, we focus in those three verticals. Within each of our industry groups, we came up with a process a number of years ago. So I told you about 2008, we kind of said we need to specialize in these industry groups. Then about six or seven or eight years ago, said that's not enough anymore. We actually need to be subspecialists within an industry. And so we go through a very diligent process where we identify which subsectors we're going to invest in each, each of our verticals. So for instance, within healthcare, we've been very active in pharmaceutical services for a long time. So we're not just a healthcare investor, but how do we build a whole ecosystem of executives and advisors and consultants and management teams and businesses within pharmaceutical services, companies that are enabling pharmaceutical companies to run clinical trials or package their drugs or manufacture their drugs or commercialize their drugs. And so that is our strategic focus for each of our groups to identify those four or five, we call them ISOs, identified sector opportunities. We go through a whole investment committee process to get those subsectors approved by our firm. And then that gives our teams license to say, when we have a pharmaceutical services opportunity, we're not making a decision at the firm level about whether we are excited about pharmaceutical services. We're at a much more specific level. Do we have a value creation plan for this company in this area that we think is going to be compelling and differentiated from and a right to win in, in this business? And you allude to the, the kind of ecosystem or infrastructure, so to speak, you can put in place related to value creation. Can you spend a little bit more time around that value creation? Like, so how, you know, I'm, I'm sure each situation is different. Do you have a plan, kind of an eye towards dramatically improving or expanding the business as you're evaluating it? We do. We always go into each investment with a value creation plan. We align with the management team of the company that we're investing in around our value creation plan so that we and they see eye to eye on what the opportunity is. And there are going to be times when we don't align. And usually that just means that's not the right investment for us. And that's okay. We don't have to always have alignment. But where we do have alignment, it becomes very powerful because we can bring specific resources to bear that hopefully can bend the growth of those businesses. So I'll give you one one example to try to bring it to life. We um, invested in a company four, five, six years ago now called CSAFE. It's a company At the time, it was a small business out in Dayton, Ohio, that made specialty pharmaceutical packaging for temperature-controlled drugs, which five or six years ago, maybe everybody didn't pay attention to it. Now, we all know vaccines, for instance. They needed to be in these very specialized temperature-controlled packaging to move around the world. Well, there are lots of drugs. Many of the new drugs that are being developed over the last decade are these drugs, they're injectables, they're biologics, they need to be temperature controlled. They're not just pills anymore. And so we had seen those trends in our other pharma services investments and said, how can we invest in in a business that's getting the benefit of those tailwinds around temperature controlled drugs? And so we found CSAFE and we were so excited about it because they had a product and a service that was second to none. 
but they were the number two player in the market. And the reason they were the number two player in the market, and they were small compared to the number one player. It was, they were probably, I don't know, a fifth the size or an eighth the size of the number one player. They didn't have a ability to really drive their go-to-market strategy that was commensurate with the quality of their product. And to give you an example of the top 20 pharma companies in the world, I think only three of them use their product and the rest use, use one of their competitors. We said that's a perfect situation for us because we know how to bring a go-to-market strategy to a pharmaceutical services company. And so we built a board where we took a CEO from one of our other pharma services company and put him on the board, actually made him chairman of the board. We took a head of sales from another one of our pharmaceutical services company, put him on the board because he could open up a couple of customers that they had not been able to sell to. We have an internal operating group who has an expertise around go-to-market. They were on the ground building a sales force and a compensation system and a tracking system of how do you sell to top 20 pharma. And five years later, they now sell to, I think, 17 or 18 of the top 20 pharma companies. And that's the kind of situation we'll look for where we think we can impact the business because we have this ecosystem around pharma services that can impact the business. And it it sounds like in that situation, you probably were able to impact the company dramatically and produce kind of fantastic growth. Is that kind of typical? You're able to kind of see these situations and figure out a way to kind of in fairly short order, have some parts, some change on the business. Absolutely. That is, that's what we strive for in every situation. And there are lots of great businesses where we don't think we can impact them. We don't think we're the a differentiated owner, and it might not be the right investment for us. But the two things that we as a firm are looking for that we think differentiate us are we're trying to focus on areas in these ISOs, where these subsectors, where we have the ecosystem, the experience, the skills to help. And then we have this uh, strategic resource group, we call it, which is our operating group that has a, a series of things that they can do exceptionally well, working hand in hand with the investment team to drive value in our portfolio. And that particular situation played right into a go-to-market strategy in pharma services where they're exceptionally uh, capable. And so we will look for opportunities like that to replicate. And I think most of our investments have some version of that ISO strategy and that SRG operating, bend the growth curve that makes it compelling for us as an investment. And can you mention like what would be straight down the fairway in terms of like the size of the business and, and where you're looking to grow it to? Yeah, we are looking for, we talk about enterprise value often in our external materials. So we're looking for enterprise value in a business from a couple hundred million to two and a half billion is kind of our sweet spot. And it's a relatively large range. And we have transactions that are even higher or lower than that. And that can translate if you try to put that in metrics, depending upon whether it's a software business or a services business, but maybe that translates to about the size of revenue as well. Maybe a software business can get to those enterprise values at 50 million of revenue and maybe a services business is a couple billion dollars of revenue. But what we are trying to do with that broader range is say, we're less focused on the size of the business and more whether it fits the criteria I talked about before. Is it in an area where we think we have specific 
knowledge and understanding and an ecosystem around it? And do we have the ability to bend the growth curve because we have operating capabilities, point of view capabilities that we can bring to the table? And we find that size range generally fits. If it gets much bigger than that, it gets harder to um, really impact those businesses. They have very deep management teams. They have very established processes and go-to-market and talent management and, and some of the things that we often bring to these middle market or upper middle market size companies. We're coming up on time here. I'd like to ask a few last questions. One is still related to the firm and then a couple more on the personal end. Tell us about uh, ESG and how THL approaches ESG, how, the level of involvement the firm has in it. Yeah, it's a very a big focus of the firm. In fact, we just had a uh, all firm meeting this week, so uh, a couple of days ago, where we have a one of our most senior partners leads our, our ESG efforts, and we've been doing a series of things to make sure we're committing the firm to our ESG goals and make it really core to who we are as, as a firm. ESG touches on a lot of different things, as you know. But one of the things we've spent a lot of time around our community, we set up a a THL foundation that we have a broad cross-section of our firm that is involved in finding organizations in our community to support. And some of those are very relevant to our own business model. So supporting an organization that is supporting younger, underrepresented people who are trying to get careers in finance, for instance. And we're also combining that with participation opportunities for our firm. We don't want to just support things with money, but with time and effort. And that's been a, a really helpful thing to kind of bring our firm together and show everyone how important this is to us. And then it goes beyond our firm, our portfolio companies. We spend a lot of time. I just had a board meeting again this week where one of the topics was what's the ESG strategy that we're pursuing within our portfolio companies and how do we share best practices across all these portfolio companies to make an impact. So it has become something that we talk about with great frequency and regularity and and kind of become core of, of how we operate our business, which I think is important. Excellent. Okay, last couple questions here. One, can you tell us about a book you've read that has had a profound impact on you if that's too serious, you could just give us a book recommendation. Yeah, okay. I talked about my major earlier in my family likes to say there are kind of three interests I have, business, sports, and politics. And they probably have me mostly right. But I, um, with what was going on in Russia and Ukraine, I, I re-picked up a book that I read a, a few years ago in the last month that I really enjoyed. It's called Once Upon a Time in Russia. I think Ben Mesrick who wrote a lot of books, including Bringing Down the House about MIT and The Accidental Billionaires by, about Facebook and Ugly Americans. So he's write, written some great books. I always like his stuff. But Once Upon a Time in Russia is the story, true story, of Russia circa 2000 as it's going through this transition, first from Gorbachev to Yeltsin, but then Yeltsin to, to Putin. And this told through the perspective of the oligarchs and oligarchs. And it's just a a fascinating story of how business and politics and media all mixed at that point in Russia and got some unintended consequences, perhaps, of how it all developed. And in this day and age gave me a lot of things to think about because democracy is 
you see democracy's fragile. There are lots of forks in the road. It's not always clear that the forks that you're looking at, if you pick one path or the other, democracy and what we all expect isn't a certainty and uh, kind of redoubled my thinking around how, how important some of those decisions are that we all make every day. Fantastic. Last question. Can you tell us about a leader that you particularly admire or you think highly of? I'll go back to my business, sports, politics. You know, if I was saying politics, the, the one that sticks out right now is Zelensky in Ukraine. And it's just amazing that this individual has been able to, I think, change the course of history because of how he's led his people. And that's pretty remarkable. And I think we'll study that leadership for a long time. On perhaps a lighter note, although I get a lot of life lessons from it in sports, Bill Belichick, the Patriots, the Kraft family. I am a huge Patriots fan. I have been my whole life. And I get a lot of learnings from them. Simple mantras like, do your job. And I think that those mantras apply to lots of things in life. We all have teams if we do our jobs well. He has another thing. He says mental toughness is doing what's right for the team when sometimes it's not what's best for the individual. Or I remember another one they said, when you're down 28 to 3 in the Super Bowl, don't get down. Think about what a great story it would be if you could come back from something like this. And so in my household, I got three young kids and we have lots of talks and we've talked about the being down 28-3 and what do you do many times. So there's a lot of life lessons that come from sports too. And I always enjoy that. Did you want to do the trifecta and go for the business leader as well? or (laughs) (laughs) The business leader, I find so many business leaders are such complicated characters. So there are many, as I think about it, a Steve Jobs or Elon Musk or Bill Gates or Jamie Dimon. They have some incredible traits. And I love reading business biographies. I finished not that long ago, uh, Warren Buffett, Snowball, which it was written a, a few years ago, but it's just an incredible story. But they're all complicated. Warren Buffett will say himself, he has a complicated life, but there are some great lessons in that as well. Well, Josh, thank you so much again for taking the time. I know our audience will find this very insightful. RJ, I really enjoyed the time together. Thank you so much and look forward to hearing more of your podcasts.